The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and Today, 1980, Episode 3, The Center of the Circle. In this episode, we will cover the end of the month of May through June. On the same day that McCartney 2 is released in America, May 21st, John Lennon releases a statement that would cut his final ties with the Beatles by selling his quarter share in Apple Corps. The reason given was that he wished to concentrate on the artistic life. In a statement, Yoko explained, We are both artists and we are really big into being a family. Those are the things we care about. The Apple office in London declined to comment. On Friday, May 23rd, John, traveling alone, left New York for a brief holiday to Cape Town, South Africa. Flying into the Jan Smuts International Airport in Johannesburg, South Africa, Lennon traveled to Cape Town and checked in at the Mount Nelson Hotel under the name Mr. J. Green. A few days later, on May 25th, John, while at the hotel in Cape Town, phones May Pang in the States and has a 90-minute conversation with her on various topics from traveling to music to potential plans for their future. I hear the drums echoing tonight. And he called me. I mean, he called me from South Africa. We talked about music. We would talk about what we liked. I mean, he called me from every, you know, in the, in the last five years uh, while he was living uh, at the Dakota at various places. And he would come over and see me when, when uh, he, you know, when Yoko would be out of town or whatever. He turned to me as if to say, hurry boy, it's waiting there for you. There's a song uh, by the Little River Band called Reminiscing. And he said, I heard this song on the radio, and, and he goes, and I really like it. And he started to hum it. And I said, oh, don't tell me. I think I have this song. He goes, you do? And I would pull it out. 
and uh, I would I put the record. He goes, that's it, that's the one. And I said, you like this song? He goes, yeah. He goes, every time I hear it, I think of us. I think of you. Lennon spent the next few days in Cape Town relaxing and meditating. On one occasion, he visited the beachfront at Muil Point, where some tourists recognized him and even posed with him for pictures. His presence became also known to the press, which at that point, he cut his holiday short. And on May 28th, John left South Africa and landed back in New York. Meanwhile, back in the UK, McCartney's band Wings seems to be on pause as two bandmates, Denny Lane and Steve Holly, are working on solo projects of their own. Denny is out promoting his recent book titled Denny Lane's Guitar Book on the Thames ITV network show Magpie with host Mick Robertson. A very big welcome indeed to Friday's edition of Magpie. Denny is also getting ready to release a solo record with his wife Jojo and go out on the road without wings. Now then, going out on your own as a career for yes. how long do you think? Oh, a few months I think. Just until we get a chance to go on the road again. Really. You know, it's just something I want to do. I've been waiting for a, um, an opportunity to get some time off. I mean, does it spell the end of Wings or anything of that sort? I hope not, Neves. <laughs> I hope not. No, it's, I mean, Wings took a long time to get together, and there's a lot of work being put into it. it as I said, it's just something I like to do, is work on the road, and we're not uh, working on the road with Wings at the moment, so... Does it help you having, I mean, like Paul McCartney has Linda on the stage with him, does it help you having your wife Jojo on the stage with you? Yeah, I suppose so. Hello, Joe. Hello, Jojo. <laughs> I had to do that, otherwise, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not going down the pub on a Friday, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, it's, she knows the songs, you see. And what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be going on with a new bunch of blokes anyway. I mm. mean, they're all from fairly well-known groups and that, but uh, when they've got time off and I've got time off, we'll mm. do some tours. But she knows the songs and there's a song on the um, recordings with me, so there you go. You're working at the moment on a new single to come out, which... Yeah. I mean, Give me a brief example of, well, and tell me how you would go about the process of writing a single which is going to be successful. Can you give me an example of how you set about writing a song? Well, I've got a song here, which, here, here it is. <laughs> oh yes, there is a song in there, yes, I see. It's it's very... the guitar, there is a song bursting to get out. I've um, tuned the guitar to an open chord. Uh, 
which is sort of uh, folky sort of mm -hmm. tuning. Right? This one is very appropriate for uh, this is for President Carter, actually. new material to take out on the road, Steve Holly is in the recording studio working on a solo project of his own. Oh. 
drummer. I'm a fledgling piano player and uh, wannabe songwriter, and I've always written songs. And I just decided one day um, that I would record the ones that wouldn't go away to the best of my ability. In other words, the songs that stuck in my head. I figured, well, perhaps they're, they're the best, the cream of, of my crop, so to speak, not to compare to anybody else. And uh, I went ahead um, and started work on that. They were meant to be demos for somebody else to record. I'm only here to Back in New York, over in Long Island, Somewhere. sailboat sales instructor 24-year-old Tyler Coney had been working on getting a captain and crew for Lennon's sales excursion to Bermuda. Tyler gathered potential crew members' names for Yoko, who was making the selections via astrology. I had to get a list of people together. I think I got together about a list of 17 people and Yoko needed your where you were born, what time you were born. And, these, and you had to be a sailor, they could navigate. So I got 17 local friends and people and family and everybody's birthday went in there. And the interesting part is Kevin and Ellen are born on the same day. So that's, that's probably why they got picked. Tyler also found a potential captain to pilot the journey. His name was Hank Holstead. Holstead was a seasoned captain who had just returned from a 10-day offshore Caribbean voyage. We had just sailed in the night before from the Caribbean. Um, we'd been offshore for 10 days, pulled into Newport, went out to customs, docked first thing in the morning, cleared customs on the way back. My charter agent said, want a charter to go to Bermuda? I said, you gotta be nuts, I just got here. He said, it's up to you. I said, book it. The, the big decision for me is, did I want to sail to Bermuda with four strangers? And that was a dangerous decision for me to make. And I actually made that on the reputation of the Coney's because I did, you have to ask a lot of questions. We're going into an environment that is hostile. Bermuda is a tiny speck in the middle of the ocean. And this is one of the toughest bodies of ocean on the planet because running right through the 700-mile track to Bermuda, we have the Gulf Stream, a river of 80-degree water rolling through this, cold water from, the, from New England. Um, it's a weather maker, and it's a sea maker. You know, the, when the wind blows against a river, the waves get particularly steep. The reason I had reservations about my crew is this, in the best case, it's a four-day-and-night ride. Um, we planned on five, plus a little bit, perhaps. Coney's had been in a couple of races I knew that were very rough. And I said, okay, if you did that Block Island race or whatever, we all got pounded. You're here to talk about it? This will work fine. Holstead agreed to captain the journey. On June 1st, he began to re-rig the Megan J, a 43-foot aft cockpit Hinkley centerboard sloop that was to take John and the crew to Bermuda. On Wednesday, June 4th, 
John, Tyler, Kevin, and Ellen all met at Cannon Hill for breakfast before Fred Seaman drove them to the Farmingdale Airport. Lennon and the crew all boarded a flight to Newport, Rhode Island. After landing, they met up with Captain Holstead at Newport Harbor. Four people showed up on the dock. They're all wearing these groovy sundial t-shirts with little feathers on them. I'm like, well, they're pretty cool. No idea, you know, this is Tyler, this is Matt. There's the gang and there's John. I'm like, hello, hello, hello. No idea whatsoever that this John guy was John Lennon. Um, he wasn't eight feet tall. I was taller than he was. Couldn't be. And just, you know, very unassuming. And we spent time that day getting ready for the trip. I think he was sorry. I was blowing his mind that I had no idea who he was. And we're talking and we're sort of looking around the galley. And I said, you know, he says, oh, you got chopsticks in there. I said, oh, yeah. I got a Japanese girlfriend. And he's like, oh, so do I. I'm like, cool. And we had that to bond over. But these clues sort of kept on emerging. And, you know, I'm, I'm obtuse, but not that obtuse. And by the time I came back from shopping and filled in the provisions and all that, um, it's getting on toward evening. It was actually, I got the suspicion, I went back to my charter agent, McCaffrey, and I said, you know, Paul, <laughs> I said, Paul, what would you say if I told you I think I might have John Lennon on my boat? McCaffrey looks at me and goes, Hank, tell you what I always tell you. You're full of shit. As the sun was setting on this warm June 4th evening, the Megan Jay and its crew, that included John Lennon, set sail on a northeast course to Bermuda. And the beauty is that as we were sailing out of here, we had just gotten the high-pressure system. Um, the clouds virtually parted and the wind built from behind us. And that's when John just looked and smiled and said, yeah, this feels right, this feels good. It was about then that I figured out for sure who I was dealing with. And I was like, oh boy, Henry, don't blow this one.
After a few days of clear sailing, the skies began to grow cloudy. Then on June 6th, a tropical storm began to bear down on the Megan J. The first thing that wakes up are your ears. And you hear the wind whistling. And the way to know when you're facing into the wind is when it hit exactly equally on both sides. But it makes noise. And along with the wind whistling by and making noise, it travels through the rigging, um, in a little bit. We hear your sails fluttering a little bit, which is a bad thing, because they beat themselves to death. Uh, and it's just, but it's really the sound of the wind going by your ears. is isn't deafening, but it is definitely loud. Waves pounded the vessel hard, taking the boat on a roller coaster of a ride. The turbulent waters were too much for Tyler and his two cousins as they retreated to their cabin below with a bout of seasickness. The crew began to get sick, obviously, because all the captain has offshore is the energy of his crew and ending up with his own. And when I watched the crew fall away one by one, logically, his seasickness, that became a real concern. We got hit with a real wave that just flattened the protective dodger, they call it, for the companionway, for the door into the boat. Just flattened it. And I had never seen that happen before. And that was about when I said, hmm, we got something big going on here. And from that moment, it continued to build. It's built over about eight hours. And then it sustained for about 30. The wave crushed our dodger was, you know, we took a better part of a breaking wave into the boat, which would be, you know, 500 gallons. Building to a 12-foot wave at the end of the, if we had the height of storm, we had probably some 20-foot seas. That's, that's pretty good size. That is from the, you measure from the back of the wave, horizontally, down to the trough between waves. The next day, June 7th, the storm continued, and their 43-foot sailboat, which seemed so big at the dock in Newport, Rhode Island, suddenly felt small. Captain Holstead, who had been navigating the boat in the storm for 30 hours straight, was fatigued and needed a rest. Being that his crew was sick, the captain had no other choice but to have Lennon navigate the Megan J as he went below to rest. One night, when the 
storm started in, in, in Massachusetts, but it may be storm. My saving structure was sick, and so there's two cousins. I all blamed it on the food they were eating when they first got on, you know, but also just that, that loss of contact with land is very different from sailing around the coast, even if you can't see it. You know that it's just there, but when you're really out there, you know, you know there's no, no reference point. Wherever you look, you're in the center of a circle. That's what it is. And they were all green and sick and throwing up, and the captain just says to me, the storm comes up, and he's all tied up in weather gear. He says, do you want to take over the wheel? I looked at John and said, I need help here. John had a cast iron stomach for a number of reasons. It was a godsend, because I had someone aboard who was just, he was amazing. I mean, he was just his normal self. The guy was pretty well unflappable. He was the guy, and I finally looked at him. I'd been awake for the better part of two days at that point, and, and working all the while. And this is a seaman's job. I got to the point where I knew that I was going to be dangerous. And that's when I looked at John, and I said, hey, come on up here, big boy. He said, what do you mean, Hank? I'm like, you got to drive this little puppy, because I got to go to sleep. And he looks at me, and he goes, Hank, I can't do that. I just got these little guitar player muscles. And I said, hey. Come on up here, big boy. That ain't the strength I'm looking for. And it was so cool. He came up, and I sat there with him for an hour, and I said, go that way. And he fell right into phase with how to steer this thing. And that's when the one big rule comes up. You never let the wind go across the back of the boat. That causes a jibe. A jibe takes this, the mainsail, and rips it across the boat, typically breaking many things on the way. You know, I said, look, that's the one thing you just don't do. Other than that, you really can't hurt this boat. You know, I sat there for an hour and watched him do it, and we chattered a little bit and blah, blah, blah. And we went on through that. Finally, I looked and said, okay, John, see you later. I'm going to sleep. And he was like, you're not, you're not going to leave me here. I'm like, I won't be far away. And please understand that I am so connected to this boat, I will know in my sleep if any new, new noise is a reason for me to wake up. I ultimately... Heard a lot of singing going on, a lot of sea chanties and a lot of just shouting at the elements. I heard rapture. In truth, I heard a man overflowing. It was marvelous. Um, and this was after a couple hours or so. I mean, that's what really sort of awakened me, put a smile on my face, and put me happily back to sleep. I was in good hands at that moment. I really was in good hands. I wake up and I sort of pushed the hatch open. I left a couple of the hatch boards out so he didn't feel cut off from us entirely. And so I'd sort of peek my head out and there's John just sort of fully one foot on either side of the boat, one hand on each side of the wheel. Very much in command and very much howling and singing and acting like a very sane madman. And that's, that's exactly what greeted me. Gave him the big wave and I took a little while to put my oil screens, my far weather gear back on because I was headed up to get drenched again. I can't answer the cabin was learning trade. And he says, uh, well, you're going to have to, because everybody else is throwing up and can't move. And I said, well, you better keep your eye on me. He says, I will. Five minutes later, he goes down looking. OK, see you. He went to sleep. My instructor, Tyler, he was there with me, but he was sick as a dog. He couldn't move. He was just sort of uh, like that. And I, I was in a major storm for six hours, uh, driving that boat, you know, and keeping it on the course. 
were buried underwater. I was smashed in the face for six hours. It's incredible experience because it won't go away. You, know, you can't change your mind. It's like being on stage. Once you're on, there's no sort of getting off. And a couple of the waves had me on my knees. I was just hanging on with my hands on the wheel, but I did have the, the rope around me to the side. But it was very powerful weather. And I had the time of my life of screaming sea shanties and shouting at the gods. I felt like a Viking, you know, Jason and the old fleece. I mean, I was So I'd like to do the Atlantic. On the morning of June 9th, the storm finally subsided. Captain Holstead surveyed the damage to the Megan J. The tri-sails, a special set of small fore and aft sails that are hoisted in place of the larger sail to help control the vessel in high winds, was damaged. John started helping mend them. The captain also checked their location and found them to be about 70 miles off course. Finally, on June 11th, after seven days at sea, the Megan Jay arrived in St. George's Harbor in Hamilton, Bermuda. When they arrived at port, the captain and crew tried to keep John's celebrity secret. Lennon used the alias John Green. The captain, the crew, and Lennon survived the storm and were grateful to be on dry land once again. Coming off the Megan J, Lennon signs the ship's journal. He actually signed it. Uh, he wrote it, Dear Megan, uh, and then you know, down at the under that, he just wrote, "Thanks, Hank. This was this was a real experience. There is no place like Noah." Lennon leased a property located on the island in Smith's Parish, at the southern end of the Harrington Sound, overlooking Devil's Hole. The property was called the Nampton Estate House, christened Alexandra. John invited Tyler and his two cousins to stay with him. Over in the UK on June 13th, Scratch Records released the single, Japanese Tears by Denny Lane.
years I fall in love this summer rain on lotus blossom on the bamboo I used a string quartet and um, then sort of overdubbed everything myself, except for a Japanese instrument, which is like a big log, like a sitar almost, you know, with strings. And um, somebody came in and did that and just pieced it together like that. Japanese Tears is um, the single. It was written about the Japanese fiasco. The B-side, Guess I'm Only Foolin', is a track from 1978 and features Steve Holly on drums. Also on the same day in the UK, Parlophone Records released the single Waterfalls by Paul McCartney. The single is accompanied with a short film and is premiered in Spain. Saludos amigos de Televisión Española. Programa Aplauso. Hello there, it's Paul McCartney here. Do you remember on the 100th edition of Aplauso, I said I was making a film clip for you? Well, we've finished it now, and here we go with a little song. Hope you're going to like it. It's called Waterfalls. Please keep to the 
The single peaked at number 9 in the UK singles charts over in New York on the same day, June 13th, John's assistant Fred Seaman flew to Bermuda with Sean and Sean's nanny, Uda-san. In the evenings, Fred and Tyler would go to local discos to party and listen to music. I'm sure there must be a disco somewhere. Fred would report back to John what he was listening to.
According to Fred Seaman, Lennon felt excited to hear about the music. On June 18th, Lennon, feeling that the Napton Estate House was too small and not private enough, leased a larger, much more secluded estate in the Fairyland Creek area of the island. The next day, John asked Fred Seaman to go out and purchase a cassette tape player and some tapes of local music. Fred returned with a Sony boombox and an assortment of tapes. One of the tapes was Burnin' by the Wailers. John felt inspired by the track Hallelujah Time on the Whalers cassette Burnin'. He especially liked one of the lyrics Living on Borrowed Time that was in the song. He was so enlightened he wrote and recorded the following. Ready for a little reggae, I think. Yes. Okay, then let's go. Welcome to Bermuda.
The next day, June 20th, John continued to develop the song Borrow Time. When he would take a break from it, he'd listen to another tape Fred bought for him, Survival, also by Bob Marley and the Wailers. John again was inspired and started to write another tune, this one called Face It. He also put this one to tape. John felt the rhythms of his music he was listening to, as well as his own compositions, intriguing. He phoned his office in New York and requested that they ship him his CompuRhythm box to Bermuda. Later that evening, Fred took John to a nightclub called Disco 40. The music he heard on the dance floor appeared to take him by surprise. I was finally dragged to a disco by an assistant of mine. And I went there, and upstairs they were playing disco, and downstairs I heard Rock Lobster by the B-52s.
And I said, that's Yoko. I thought there was two records going at once or something. Because I thought it was so like, so her, I thought this person studied her. When John returned to his rented estate house, I said, get the axe out, call the wife. He phoned Yoko to tell her what he had heard. I called her, I said, I said, you won't believe this, I was in a disco under somebody doing your voice. I said, this time they're ready for us. I said, well, look, uh, we were talking about recording. It must have triggered something off here because I'm getting all this stuff. And I started singing it to her down the phone or playing a cassette. Put the business deals in automatic pilot. And start writing. We're going to put together an album. <laughs> we are. I've already started writing. Sean will be five. I'll be 40. The time has come, the walrus says. Lennon then proceeded to sing over the phone to her. The next day, June 21st, John composes another song. Just suddenly, like had, if you pardon the expression, diarrhea of creativity. <laughs> Woke up this morning, blues around my head. No need to ask the reason why. Went to the kitchen.
On June 22nd, John took Fred and Helen Seaman, Sean, and Udo-san to the Bermuda Botanical Gardens in Pagan Parish for lunch. One of his visits through the gardens, he took note of the name of an identification tag of a dormant freesia plant. I was taking Sean and the nanny and the family to a little, uh, except for mother, who was selling cows, in Bermuda to the botanical gardens for lunch to the Italian restaurant because I could get espresso and Sean could get some junk food. <laughs> and I was just walking in, I looked down and it was a botanical garden and it, it said freesia, double fantasy. And it was some flowers. And I just thought, double fantasy, that's a great title. Because it has so many meanings that you couldn't even begin to think what it means. So I, it means everything you can think of. Over in New York on June 23rd, Yoko had put up for purchase a five-year-old pregnant Holstein cow. At the New York State Fairgrounds auction in Syracuse, the cow finally sold for $265,000, which is a new world record for her breed. Yoko's informed and immediately gets on the phone organizing this new gold record sale. John, excited about his bounty of songs, tries to reach Yoko in New York, but can't get through to her. I called her, you know, and I couldn't get through. Can you imagine it? Through the <laughs> office, she was, she was so, so many calls, and I couldn't, I'm really mad, you know. And I wrote this song in the, in the heat of passion, as it were.
It's sparked by the fact that I couldn't get through on the damn phone. Over the next few days, John would call Yoko in New York and play her a song that he just wrote. And I started singing it to her down the phone or playing a cassette. second day sailing. I said, wow, there's no place like nowhere. And John goes, write that down, write that down. Once you go into the ocean, when, when you get out to nowhere, you're on your own. would call John in the Bahamas and play him a song that she just wrote. And she would call back two hours later and say, well, when you sang, sang that, she'd come back with moving on or something. <laughs> suddenly something else would come like starting over i said hey well look this is what happened take one of the new one woman <coughs> one two three four Three, two, three, four. 
and I'm smiling inside. You and I watching each other on a street corner. Cars and buses and planes and people go by, but we don't care. We wanna know, we wanna know in each other's eyes that hard times are over, over for some time. Telephone. I remember that, and and I would sing some, you know, just like Happy Birthday or something. Or Mary had a little lamb. On June 27th, excited about the outpouring of songs, Yoko flies out from New York to meet with John and Sean in the Bahamas. Back in the UK on June 28th at Fenston Manor outside Tenterton in Kent, Wings reassemble for a series of rehearsals for their next LP. China cup with a recipe for a lovely day sticking out of my back pocket but it wasn't always such a pretty sight cause we used to fight like cats and dogs till we made it up in a ballroom ballroom dancing made a man of me one, two, three, four. I just played a yo-yo ballroom dancing. I seen it on TV. Where I got what I got. Ballroom dancing. was a kid that didn't cry if it hurt a bit on a far land to a far land you took most known diseases but it wasn't always such a pretty sight we used to fight like cats and dogs till we made it up in a ballroom Wasn't always such a pretty sight Cause we used to fight like cats and dogs Till we made it up in a ballroom I tell you that ballroom dancing 
a pretty sight we used to fight like cats and dogs we made it up in a bowl Such a pretty sight Cause we used to fight like cats and dogs Till we made it up in a ballroom Continuing in a moment. Wings continue to rehearse. I'd like to sing a song. I go, Old Man Lovin'. John flies back to record at the Hit Factory in New York. It's been so long since we've been apart. My feet are hurting and I've started far. It's easy. Okay, let's just try, okay? And Beatles fan Paul Gorish meets Lennon on the streets of New York again and asks for a photograph. It's not going to hurt our relationship, however little it is, if I could get a picture, you know. And he laughed and he said, yeah. He says, when we're ready to go public, he said, I'll have my guy call you. And you can take all the pictures you want then. He says, because I think I'm getting ready. Next on Yesterday on Today. This one is probably for Mr. Richard Starkey. For more information or to contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at YesterdayPod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. See you next time.
I'm Paul Kaminsky. I'm James Kaminsky. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. And we bring you the Kaminsky family of podcasts yesterday and today and the Third Men podcast. You might know me from one of those dumb voices I do, or my dad (laughs) from his better show than ours. Wow. (laughs) And we're here to tell you about some cool merchandise you can pick up for the shows. As we mentioned in each episode, we do not in any way profit from these shows whatsoever, but to break even on some expenses, we have put up some cool merch that you can pick up to help support the show. Yes, some fun apparel, things you can put on yourself. Are we going to be selling Marks and Spence underwear? (laughs) Don't worry, we will. You can head to our social media pages. That's Facebook.com slash Yesterday and Today Podcast or Facebook.com slash Third Men. Or you could head to Society6.com slash Kaminsky Family Podcast. That's Society, the number six, dot com slash K-A-M-I-N-S-K-I Family Podcasts. Yeah, keep our lights on. I'm in the dark. <laughs> Dad, any words of wisdom? Hello? The lights just went out. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, we need your help. <laughs> Buy stuff. Perhaps a coffee mug that you can enjoy a beverage out of while listening to our shows. And if you haven't got yours, please send forth in and get a free one. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Dad. All right. We'll see you on the podcast, folks. Bye. It's audio. You can't see oh, me. For God's sake.